The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the moment in our day when we seek stillness in God's presence, guidance from the Word of God, and grace to live by faith. This is the moment when we view horizontal living from the divine perspective. For the eyes of Jehovah run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Now here's today's message. We hope it will be a blessing. Welcome to Beside Still Waters. Interesting topic, uh, needful to discuss, but one that I believe is foreign, uh, perhaps in the majority of Christians' lives, and that is God's terror, a dread of offending a holy God. The notion of a God that is alive strikes concern in men's hearts, but not to the degree that they feel compelled to do anything about it. It is far easier to conceive a deity that is uh, understood as the laws of nature, like uh, people often say, you put something into the universe and it comes back to you. And they personify certain characteristics in the physical and spiritual universe as having godlike traits. And when we rely on the notion of God as being distinct from me, from my person, but my interactions are relegated to interacting with spiritual laws like the law of attraction or the law of sowing and reaping, having the thought in my mind that I can influence outcomes through my decisions, through my thinking, then that becomes an acceptable way of spiritual beings, of, of, of Christians sometimes, accepting the notion of God. It, that's an acceptable form to think of God. And even to the point where if my actions are immoral, it is still acceptable. There is no dread. Strange as it may seem, I have recollections of dreading when my father was near to returning from work, when I was a boy, that is. And I don't know where uh, the origin of these fears came from, but it was grounded in the notion that I hope there's nothing, at least I would say to myself, I hope there's nothing that my father finds out about me that I may be currently doing that's going to arouse his displeasure, arouse his ire. Now, I knew that my father loved me and loves me, and I was confident that my father cared for me. Yet the anticipation of doing something that aroused his displeasure was the very fact that, as people would say, it kept me in line. It was the preventative from pursuing some uh, deleterious behavior that might be hurtful to me or shameful to our family. And so those, this notion of fear 
seems foreign to our society and sadly foreign to churches and foreign to preaching and is absent from the lives of Christians. We've lost the sense of the dreadful glory of God and and that thought eliciting a response that makes me reticent to offend him. And so my objective ought to be that I should never displease or arouse his wrath. Not that he is a vengeful God or that he is a short-tempered God, but more so that he is a holy God. And he is so holy that I dare not risk offending the infinite purity that personifies his holiness. Deuteronomy Chapter 4, verse 34, has Moses giving us or giving the children of Israel a warning and vicariously giving us a warning through his admonition to them before they entered into the land of promise. And he says to them, where has God spoken to a nation? And if this is so, then this requires on our part Careful consideration. The fact that God deigns to speak, that he deigns to let us know his thoughts, his will. And so men continually challenge the Christian whether God is or God is not. And I want to say to you, my friends, that we of ourselves cannot instill the dread of God. There's no uh, innate fear, no dread, no concern, no consequence that is birthed in us. And and also, this cannot be instilled by reason or force or coercion. The fact that God deigns to speak to a nation is noteworthy. Why? Because people, people often disregard the validity of the scriptures The fact that God would undertake to break his silence for a multitude of people to hear his voice and to place upon him, on them, not only his commands, but to sanction a firm commitment on his part to be their God. That should be a grave warning to us. Men ought to be aware that God is And if he undertakes to speak to men, then we are morally bound to heed. We're morally bound. Moses brought before the people their accountability to God, the mandate to be a holy, separated people, and the warning that to disregard this fact would be costly. And we see in Holy Writ that it was costly. Men are the image bearers of God. And as image bearers, we are accountable. We are answerable to him. Most importantly, as eternal beings encased in bodies, we will one day, every man, stand before this God in whose image we are made and are called before to give an account of ourselves. Now, it will be different 
for the man who dies outside of the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the great white throne awaits that person. But for the Christian, the bema, the judgment seat, where we are judged for our works, we will be called upon to stand before him. And Jesus, for example, alluded to this when the Pharisees asked him, if they ought to pay taxes to Caesar. And he challenged them, bring me a coin. And on that coin was stamped the image of Caesar. And it is with that evidence that he challenged them by asking them whose image and superscription is on the coin. In other words, this image resembles who? Caesar. And the writing also bears evidence of whose stamp? Caesar's. So too, we, by our very makeup, our attributes, in, uh, intellect, our sense of justice, our affinity to love, and all of these human attributes that we exhibit are evidences of the divine stamp on our being, and by virtue of these evidences, we will certainly stand before the one whose image we bear, and it will become unmistakable on that day that perhaps for many of us, we have been living our lives in complete disregard of the one before whom we now stand and who calls us to give an account of ourselves. In Psalm 88, uh, the 3rd, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 13th, and 15th verse uh, identifies and depicts a righteous man being afflicted by his troubles. And we find that in verse 3. And in addition to that, he found himself in a difficult circumstance and considers that God has placed him there. And then in verse 6, and when he would have found comfort in or from his friends, for reasons we are not told, God made him detestable to them. And so this man found himself to be alone, alone. In the midst of his troubles, tears are frequent. And the takeaway of this, which is of import to all of us, is simply this. And we find it in verse 9. He, this man, is compelled in his circumstance to call on God every single day and to appeal to him with outstretched arms. And this is the place of humility. This is what is needed by every devotee, every disciple. This is the place where God reserves the right to bring a man to his lowest point that he might know he's dust, I am dust, and I must give glory to God. This man was made compelled to call upon him not only in the midst of his need, but at the very rising of the sun, at the very beginning of the day. And his commentary on the ways of God is stated in this manner when he says, I suffer your terrors and I'm distracted. He cannot focus because of what God is doing in his life. And this is where God would have a man to be in the very front row seat to behold the majesty and glory of God, and yes, to be terrified by the knowledge of who God is. In Proverbs 20 and verse 2, Solomon had 
as is always the case in, throughout the Proverbs, which I really enjoy reading the Proverbs and meditating on it, but Solomon had an uncanny ability to take the magnitude of life's ordinary events and then constrict them to a sentence or two packed with vital truths about the nature of the human experience. Hence, the Proverbs, <laughs> as the book is known. And so we can liken our relationship to the glory of God in one of Solomon's commentaries, in Proverbs 20, verse 2, he says, The terror of a king is as the roaring of a lion. He that provokes him to anger sins against his own soul. The terror of a king is as a roaring of a lion. And so resident in the king of the jungle is the terrifying reality that if he sets his desire on you as his prey, your end is at hand. <laughs> the king of the jungle is known for his fierce bravery and is not deterred by the size of his uh, uh, opponent. And if he's aroused to hunt and you are his potential prey, he will pursue you until he overtakes you. How much more the God of heaven. My friends, it is a frightful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. He is the king of heaven and earth. And to arouse his displeasure is to do so at the detriment of your own soul. Yet, man scoffs at this because God has remained silent for so long. But I, I tell you, the day is fast approaching and that may be for you that you will behold the terrors of the king in his anger and are now called upon to give account of your deeds in this life. Or even perhaps the careless saint who lived their lives disregarding the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now God has allowed through trial for you to be humbled and to be compelled to call upon him. And it is in one's best interest to cast oneself upon his mercies, knowing that we are undeserving of his pity. Yet we are told in the scriptures that God the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is full of pity, full of loving kindness. Sadly, many Christians are less fearful of offending the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we have removed him from the high throne in our thinking, in our meditation. The dethroning of God makes men less fearful of offending or taking immoral steps. The devotee becomes less fearful or desensitized in the process of living out their Christian lives. And there are many examples to draw from. However, we will use Jehoshaphat as the basis for our consideration today. Tell me, what would be the level of any person's experience if that person embraced the notion of God accurately as it is portrayed in Holy Writ? What would be the, 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 the level, the quality of my spirituality, the quality of my living? 
we find that men of antiquity responded to their understanding of the holy nature of God, of course, either positively or negatively. We, we have only to read the, uh, the uh, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles to, to see that the majority of the kings, in spite of what was known about the nature of God, lived in a way that elicited judgment. But for holy men, it also elicited a corresponding uh, uh, favor from Jehovah. So whether a man did ill or good, invariably, there was a response to the person's notion of God. And this is critical to our understanding. This is vital. Who or what do I think God is with respect to his attributes? What do I think about the person of the infinite God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? What do you think of him? Or do you think of him? And then secondly, what should be my anticipated expectation of his action based on my response to his word or his standards. In other words, given what I have been doing or living, what should I expect God to do? Really? What we are seeing is that, especially in the scriptures, of course, God is continually responding to the person's response to his command. Again, I want to repeat that. Throughout the scriptures, we find that God gives a command in whatever way, shape, or form it is presented. That is, he's taking the initial step, the first step. He awaits the person's response to the command. And once they respond, he is now going to respond to their response to his command. So again, the paradigm is really very basic. The event that comes into my life can be interpreted as God's response to my initial response to his command. So first we have the word of the command, in other words, to be holy. And then secondly, we have my response to that command to be holy, which would be followed by, thirdly, God's response to my response to his command to be holy. And when God responds to my response to his command to be holy, the next step is the critical step. It is now left to me to either continue in obstinacy or to repent and return to the place of holiness. What is important is this. The devotee, the disciple, awaits God's response. He's waiting for God. There is a looking, an expectation of what God will do in response to my response to his command. Now, this is a good thing, assuming the person responds in accord with the divine mandate. Then, 
there can be a waiting for divine blessing, an expectation of good from God, a waiting upon his word. There is also the notion of starting and living one's life with high notions of God. Now, I want, to, I want to give a small warning here. Sometimes my estimation of myself changes. And sometimes that change is not for good. That change, the way I view myself in relation to God, sort of takes a different turn, a different color. And that change interferes with my high notions of God and what his response might be. And let's, let's look carefully at this as it appears in, in our life experience. As I mentioned, God mandates how we ought to live and respond to him. He responds and we respond to this mandate in our words and or our actions, whether positively or negatively. And then thirdly, God responds to our response to his word, which is ultimately a command to be holy as he is holy. His response might be in the short term, a matter of days, weeks, or months, or it might be long term. Several years may pass before we see and experience the consequence, positively or negatively, of our choices and behaviors. So we are therefore left to respond to his action and thus begins the cycle. We are told, for example, in 2 Chronicles 17, in, in, in uh, the 3rd and the 17th verse, I believe, that Jehovah was with Jehoshaphat. Why? For he walked in the first ways of his father David and sought not unto the Baals. So God gave a command. He gave his word. He, he, Jehoshaphat had the, 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 the narrative of David's life, for example, and, and Jehoshaphat responded to this narrative by walking in David's ways, the ways of the first ways of David, not after you know, he sort of you know, <laughs> went off course, and he did not go after the Baals. And we learn later on that the kingdom was established under Jehoshaphat. So the mandate was clear in that he walked in the first ways of his father David. And we know that David was a man after God's own heart. And he desired the things that God desired. And he wanted to be the man that God would have him to be. And he spent time, uninterrupted time, meditating on who God is, his person, his promises, his works, his deliverances, and all that distinguished him as a living God. We have the Psalms, for example. David enjoyed and lived in this high notion of God, so much so that even at the age of 16 or 17, he went out against a seasoned veteran like Goliath, fearless as to the consequences because he knew Jehovah's deliverance and Jehovah's enabling in slaying a lion and a bear. David's notion of God was elevated. God was on the throne. God was on the throne of his heart. And then in 2 Chronicles 19, the first three verses, we now learn of Jehoshaphat, wrath of God being on him. The quintessential error that the people of faith make with respect to God is to assume that God's standards are similar to ours, that God is like us, and we forget that 
God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. God is no respecter of persons and will certainly judge according to the works of every man. King Jehoshaphat even went so far as to further the cause of the very enemy of God, Ahab, and this man expected to still be blessed with that decision. He had changed, and by changing, the very notion, the high notion of God, also changed. Jehoshaphat went to war, condoned the persecution of a righteous man, allowed injustices to occur, and he remained silent. And when he was almost killed in battle, a battle that was not his own, but designed to, to be the very means that, that Jehovah would use to execute the man who brought so many evils on the northern kingdom. This king, Jehoshaphat, had no words of thanks for God's loving kindness and mercy. Hence, when he returned to Jerusalem in peace, he was told by Jehu, should you help the ungodly and love them that hate Jehovah? A very, very simple sentence. You're helping God's enemies, and you're loving them that actually hate the very God that held high notions in your heart and mind. And he says, therefore is wrath upon you from Jehovah. As he changed, God changed. And so when we have turned from God and frowned upon his values and allowed the persecution and destruction of his people and embraced lifestyles that are clearly outlined in the scriptures as contrary to his will, we must expect that the wrath of God will also abide upon us too. This eventuality indicates the lack of reverence and holy fear of God. I am uneasy because I know that I have offended him. It causes me distress. This is what we should be saying to ourselves. And this distress is the clear evidence that I am categorically out of the will of God and need to hasten into his presence, beseeching his mercy, because there's a recognition, I am worthy of the wrath of God. Yet, Many, many devotees, many disciples have no fear in the least. We fail to recognize we are worthy of judgment and have rightly caused God to sanction and execute immediate judgment as he did in the church of Corinth when Paul could say to many of them, because of their disorderly conduct around the Lord's table, some of you are weak, some of you are sickly, and some of you sleep. The saints of Corinth were suffering not because of chance or diet or culture, but because they had offended the living God who indwelt them by his spirit. They were his temples. They were living uh, in such a manner that they disregarded his holiness. He did not hold uh, a high place in their thinking. They had no cognizance of the gravity of this moral breach, and his wrath was poured out and therefore justified. What about you, my friend? I ask you to examine your life in the light of God's word and ask yourself, are there any parallels in the scriptures to the way I am living? And if there are, what was the outcome to those men or women who lived as I'm living, whether good or ill? 
Were they blessed or were they cursed? Were they enjoying the presence of God or were they looking over their shoulders, anticipating judgment? Sure judgment because of overt rebellion against the holy God who dwells in his holy temple, which temple we are. Second Chronicles 19, 4-10. Holy dread. You ask yourself, how do I get back on the path of walking with God? This is, this is, this is what Besides Still Waters is all about. Encouraging believers to get on the path of walking with God. How do I live in his presence and resurrect yet again the fear of God in my life? Well, for one thing, we could take the steps that Jehoshaphat took in verse 4. It says, Jehoshaphat dwelt in Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to Mount Ephraim, and brought them back to Jehovah, the God of their fathers. So as I said in my previous podcast, he returned to his first works, to his first love. And then he went back among the people and sought to propagate a love for God by teaching them from the scriptures and even selecting able men to do that very task. And so it is not difficult, I say to you, I appeal to you, that it is not difficult to resume the presence of God. We need only resume, number one, the first works, and number two, the resurrection of the first love, and spend time yet again meditating on the grandeur of God, his glorious holiness, until such that a fire burns within our hearts, and there sparked within us the dread of offending him. And this becomes the watch and the watchword of our lives. We are watching, we are careful not to offend him. But sadly, we are too preoccupied with the pleasures and cares of this life to the point where God becomes small in our vision and in our thinking. And so we become desensitized. We're not fearful of offending a little God. He's not little, but in our thinking, he becomes little. And the scriptures accurately state that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And that applies to the very themes that occupies our hearts and minds. A man cannot for long contemplate the grandeur of God who fills all heaven and earth and has also taken residence in our bodies, in our hearts and minds, there will always be a result. But the paltry results that we have seen outside of our lives and perhaps in our lives, the irreverence, the lack of holiness, it bespeaks a neglect so great that it begs the question if this is authentic Christianity or if that person who claims to be a Christian truly has had the work of grace done in their hearts and lives. Oh, my friends, let us return to having a heart filled with gracious, holy thoughts of our first love. Jehoshaphat told his appointed leaders that they are to let the terror of Jehovah be upon you. That's what he said. Let Jehovah's terror be upon you. And this holy terror drove them to be careful what they did, to be careful how they judged, because they recognized 
There is no sin or iniquity with Jehovah, no respect of persons, and therefore it behooved them never to offend him, but rather to serve in holy reverence. In Second Chronicles 20 and 29, we see a revival of that terror. My dear friends, God is a God of mercy, loving kindness, willing to forgive our iniquities and to restore a sweet fellowship with his people to the extent that he proves himself again, just as he did with Asa, Jehoshaphat's father. As the seer told Asa, for the eyes of Jehovah, my favorite verse, for the eyes of Jehovah run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose hearts are perfect towards him. And so Jehovah did yet again with Jehoshaphat what he did with Asa. When the nations of Moab and Ammon and the Maonites came against him, he and Judah and Benjamin cast themselves upon Jehovah. And I want to say to you, please note that Jehovah loomed large in Jehoshaphat's mind and heart. And we find this in in, in the the, the, uh, fifth to the tenth verse, when he called him, that is Jehovah, the God of our fathers the God of the heavens, the ruler of the kingdoms, the God of power and might, the one whom none can withstand, Abraham's friend, the God of our fathers. That's a lot of history. The God of the heavens. That's a pretty broad domain. The ruler of the kingdoms of the nations, they are powerless before him. The God of power and might, his attributes, who he is. The one whom none can withstand. The enemies are nothing. They're just dust. And Abraham's friend, he's a personal God. This king started with the grandeur of God before He contemplated his problem, which he was fearful. But God loomed large in his eyes and in his heart. And this vision, in this vision, this high view of the glory of God, it was clear that his heart was looking to this God of such infinite magnitude. He was looking to him alone. And thus Jehovah could speak to the people through one of the The Levites, fear not, not to be dismayed by the multitude and by their Judah's paltry numbers or by the size of the enemy. This battle would be God's. And at the end of this great victory, for the second time in Jehoshaphat's reign, we are told in the 29th verse of the 20th chapter, the terror of God was on all the kingdoms of the land when they heard that Jehovah fought for the enemies of Israel. My friends, revival doesn't have to be a chance event. But revival is often the result of a man or woman who has spent hours in contemplation of the God of their lives, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of heaven and earth. 
the God who dwells in us by his spirit. And when we are in contemplation of his glorious majesty, it is only but a short while before we find he is willing to undertake for us and to fight our battles and to show himself strong in the behalf of those of us who quietly wait for him, whose hearts and minds are occupied with him. Oh, Father, help us today to be thoroughly occupied with you for your pleasure and your glory. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining Besides Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Besides Still Waters is the quiet moment in the stillness of God's presence to receive guidance, light, and grace to live by faith. I hope you've been helped and encouraged to press on living for the glory of God. It has been a pleasure and a privilege to connect with you on this podcast. To stay connected, please follow Christian Javois on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in. And we will see you on the next podcast of Beside Still Waters.